Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Michael Pfeiffer, and we're talking about his new book just published with NYU Press, The Making of American Catholicism, Regional Culture and the Catholic Experience. Michael, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Zach. It's good to talk with you about the, about the book. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm and I'm looking forward to discussing your book. But before we do that, uh, can you tell our listeners something about your own background, what what you do, and and maybe also how you came to work on this project? Yeah, um, so uh, I, I'm a professor of history at, at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which is part of the City University of New York, and uh, I've been at John Jay. Well, not not quite fifteen years. Um, and taught several places before John Jay, and much of my work uh, before this book actually was on American violence and lynching. And so I uh, published uh, actually five books on American lynching. So this this Catholicism book uh, was was a sort of a new departure for me. And in terms of how I got into the project. Uh, several, several things, uh, were, were important. Uh, one of them was that, uh, I was in New Orleans, uh, just before Hurricane Katrina in, in 2005. And I spent some time visiting, uh, an African American Catholic parish, which became the focus of the first chapter of the book and became very interested in, in the sort of the distinctiveness of, of, of that Black Catholic experience and the Southern Catholic experience uh, uh, in, in in New Orleans, and I follow the uh, sort of the difficult uh, experience and trajectory of that parish, which actually was closed in the years after Katrina, and I began to think about whether you know whether I might want to write about this and and, and do some work on this. Uh, so that was really sort of the the event and the kind of the experience that that pulled me into this. 
but then my teaching also sort of moved in this direction. And in, in the uh, early 2010s, I began offering a course on the history of global Catholicism at, at uh, John Jay College. And our students are from the, the many of them are from the, the so-called outer boroughs of New York City. So the Bronx and uh, Brooklyn and Queens um, and also Staten Island and, and uh, Manhattan to a certain extent. Uh, but offering this course uh, was it was a really rich experience. And so uh, incredibly diverse experiences that students were bringing to the class. And many of them had Catholic backgrounds. Some of them didn't, but many of them did. And they, the, the students represented the, really the, the, uh, the, the diversity of, of, of Catholicism in New York City. So, of course, many of them were from Latinx backgrounds and, uh, you know, for example, um, uh, Mexican uh, immigrants, uh, uh, Ecuadorian, uh, 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 Peruvian, etc., other, other Latinx groups. Uh, also Haitian, uh, Haitian-American uh, Haitian students uh, took the class. Polish-American students took the class. Of course, Italian-American students. So it, it was a very rich experience uh, teaching uh, this course on on the history of global Catholicism, and I, I had had to adapt uh, uh, quite readily uh, in light of the uh, you know sort of the, uh, uh, the the different experiences that the students were bringing to the course. But that uh, also moved me in the direction of of wanting to to write about this. Uh, I also have been involved in uh, campus ministry at actually the first college that I that I taught at my first full-time job job was at the Evergreen State College in Olympia Washington and that actually made its way into the epilogue of the book that experience and sort of the the uniqueness of the uh, religious landscape uh, in the Pacific Northwest in the in sort of the the uh, you know, sort of the the particularity of the Catholic experience in the Northwest is is reflected actually in the first few pages of the of the epilogue so I think those various experiences brought me uh, to wanting to uh, to write this book. Uh, and my another aspect of my own background is is that I am a Midwesterner, and so I was born in Wisconsin and and, and raised there. Uh, haven't lived there since I was eighteen years old, uh, but I think that 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 was something that I brought. Uh, to this as well that that growing up uh, in 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 a Catholic culture in Wisconsin uh, and wanting to sort of think about that and how that fit into uh, a national Catholic culture landscape uh, that too was formative in terms of the the shape that this book would eventually take. Yeah, that's all very very interesting, and and I think uh, this is a very well researched study that you've produced. Um, and, and so whereas some histories of American Catholicism, they've resulted in, in a homogenized account of, of Catholicism across the country, your work it carefully mines the, the nuances, the distinctions of, of Catholic formation, even down to the local scale. Um, and you argue that, that regional and also transnational relationships have, have actually been central to the development of American Catholicism. So it seems that that a broad sweeping analysis of American Catholicism on on a national scale it can miss some of the uh, some of the particularities of of the Catholic experience 
and also its global connections. Isn't, is that kind of your take? Yeah, that, that is the take of my book. And it, it's not to slight uh, uh, the other studies out there and the, the, the surveys of, of, of American Catholic history, which are, which are very good. Most of them are very, very good. Uh, but they, they, uh, they, they don't tend to emphasize region uh, uh, particularly. Uh, they also, they, they uh, sort of the, the, the way they frame it, uh, the, the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic states, uh, Catholics in those, in those regions uh, are, are quite prominent. And it's not, a, it's not like they completely neglect uh, other parts of the country, for example, the Midwest or the American West or the South. But these other parts of the country uh, are not very prominent uh, in, those, in those histories. Uh, and, you know, one thing that the, that my book explores is how Catholicism really looks very different, uh, if, if we, if we go, uh, into, in, into different regions. So, you know, for example, in the Northeast, and, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this, but in the Northeast, uh, the Irish Catholic legacy is, is really, really extremely important. And it's important in other regions uh, as well, but it's not nearly as important as it is in the Northeast. And so, for example, uh, and we'll be talking, I'm sure, about uh, uh, the, the, the chapters that deal with the Midwest. But, but in, in the Midwest, uh, the, the, the German Catholic uh, legacy uh, is, 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 is also very, very important. And the, the, the numbers of German Catholics uh, actually were, were, were quite a bit uh, more significant than, than Irish Catholics uh, in, in places like Wisconsin uh, or, or Minnesota. Uh, and if you go uh, to the American West, it really depends on where, but a place like Southern California, uh, again, the, the Irish Catholic influence was there, but it wasn't nearly as important uh, as, say, in Northern California, where, where the Irish Catholic presence and a priest coming from Ireland, uh, uh, Irish uh, uh, Catholic immigrants, uh, was, was, was much more important in, in say, Sacramento or, or uh, San Francisco than it was in Los Angeles. Uh, so there, there is a degree of particularity uh, that, that I think is really important. And to think about the, the, uh, uh, how uh, things really differed, uh, uh, you know, as we move among different regions and, and, um, and we, we sort of think about uh, some, of the, some of these, some of these, these, uh, these distinctions. So, you know, the book is trying to make uh, an argument uh, for a larger American Catholic culture as it developed, but seeing how that was composed of, of these these uh, these particular regional experiences that that, that, that varied significantly. It seems like like what can only make a project like this possible, sort of uh, helping us rethink the way um, we assess the development of Catholic culture, kind of moving away from traditional centers of Catholic culture to seeing places like New Orleans and Iowa and, and Wisconsin take take significance. The way you can make the arguments you, you do is to spend a lot of time in the archives. And so I'd love to hear more about how you went about your research and and what you found uh, that, that kind of helped shape your hypotheses. Uh, sure. So the, you know, the research took about 10 years. Um, I think I started around 2010 or so, or maybe even a little bit earlier. And I visited 
uh, several archdiocesan di and diocesan archives, uh, most notably in New Orleans and in uh, New York, New York City. In, in New York City, the, the archives are actually at the, the major seminary uh, for the, the uh, New York Archdiocese, uh, which is in Yonkers. So I went to Yonkers and I, I uh, uh, used the, the archives there. I went to New Orleans, used the archives there. Uh, also uh, gained some access to the, the diocesan archives in, in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, was actually not able to gain access to the, uh, the Archdiocesan Archives in Los Angeles. Uh, and this is actually a situation uh, which, unfortunately, has, has not been uncommon uh, for Catholic historians, that they, they, they've had difficulty over the decades uh, uh, accessing uh, diocesan uh, collections. Uh, but again, you know, for the most part, I was able to, to access uh, diocesan archives and had, had actually uh, great assistance uh, in, in, in most cases. But I supplemented that work in diocesan archives with uh, a lot of other kinds of work in, in uh, primary sources and, of course, also secondary sources. But for primary sources, you know, for example, there, there was a lot of work done in the 19th century, uh, kind of the, 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 the very first uh, the very first efforts to to write a history of American Catholicism. And and, you know, actually, these works, in, in some ways, we can consider them uh, both primary and secondary sources. But but they're, they're really the kind of the first draft of American Catholic history. And in, in, in some cases, these, you know, these sources are very, very useful uh, still. Uh, and also, uh, for example, newspapers. Uh and, and, and now, actually, in great contrast with when I began working as a historian in the 1990s, but, but today, uh, many historical newspapers have been digitized. And, and so it, it's very easy you know, to, to search for things in, in these digital databases and, and to, to find uh, uh, many, many useful articles. Uh, and this was certainly the case, uh, for example, uh, when I was working on Catholicism in New Orleans and Catholicism in, in Los Angeles, uh, you know, many many uh, articles uh, uh, were available uh, through digital uh, databases. So it really was a variety of, of, of different kinds of uh, materials, uh, and then of course also uh, many many secondary sources um, using those. Uh, to contextualize uh, the, the, the primary sources. You know, one of the things that is challenging about Catholic history and, and, and more generally uh, church history, as I'm sure you're familiar with, Zach, uh, is that, uh, you know, traditionally it, 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 it's, it's written by uh, practitioners, whether they be uh, priests, clerics, ministers, uh, and they, they, they have a particular ecclesiastical focus, which, which in some ways is very, very useful uh, to lay historians. But uh, it, it also, you know, it means that we, we sort of have to, uh, to use the histories that they produce with, with, with a certain care, because obviously we have different emphases uh, in, in, in some cases. So, you know, those are, and that's sort of a, a brief rundown of the of the kinds of sources that I used and the and the kinds of archives that I used. In terms of the uh, the diocesan archives that I visited, 
I used uh, a variety of different kinds of sources there. And so, for example, they they had uh, they had uh, files on various uh, parishes that I was interested in the histories of those parishes and various materials. For example, that the the, the chancery uh, the, the chancery is the uh, as you may know is the is the sort of the the, the office of the diocese uh, that, that the bishop heads and. Uh, when the, when the bishop or the archbishop is communicating with various priests uh, in parishes, the, the, the chancery is the is the office that is that is uh, uh, the agent of this communication. So the, 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 the chancery would, would have letters that they would be sending to these clerics and so on. And sometimes um, the you know the, the diocese and the, the bishop he's he's doing a, a visitation and he's he's uh, Sending out questionnaires to parishes, and the, uh, the 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 pastor needs to fill out the the uh, the questionnaire, and and these questionnaires can be quite interesting in terms of how the par- uh, how the uh, pastor is answering the questions, and you get a sense of of sort of the the uh, the, uh, the pastor's personality, the pastor's emphasis, also what what the bishop at the time think thinks is important. So, for example, when I was looking at, at race in in New Orleans Catholicism in the 1950s, the uh, the archbishop was very interested in trying to desegregate uh, Jim Crow parishes, but yet at the parish level, many of these uh, parishes that had been segregated uh, as, as, as white parishes uh, that were not welcoming African-American parishioners, uh, the, the, uh, the, the pastors were answering the questionnaires in, in, in really quite interesting ways that, that didn't quite line up, for example, with uh, with with uh, what I gathered from oral histories that I did with with uh, uh, black parishioners, with African Americans who had attended the parish, uh, even back in that era. Uh, also, in terms of uh, the archival materials, I looked at uh, sometimes baptismal registers, which well, actually at this time are are still often held uh, in the parishes themselves and in various uh, you know states of repair and disrepair. These 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 kinds of records. Uh, I also looked at the files that were kept by dioceses on on various clerics. Um, sometimes uh, you know very interesting materials, uh, letters and and um, uh, uh, etc. That, that, that reflected on the 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 time that these these clerics had spent within the parishes. I was interested in. So it really was a variety of secondary and primary sources that I used. Well, it sounds like you've done quite the work to, to make this possible. Well, as we turn to the book, um, you begin by devoting a bit of attention to the ways in which Catholicism appeared and developed in the context of the American South, specifically the city of New Orleans. Now, New Orleans Catholicism, it, it's, it's one distinctive variant of, of Southern Catholicism, but why is it an important one? That, that's that's a very interesting question, and you know, I I think it's it's extremely important uh, New Orleans Catholicism, South Louisiana Catholicism, because this is one of the, in fact, it it it, it is the only uh, portion of the South where Catholics have been the majority, and the rest of the South uh, Catholics uh, have been fairly small in number, uh, and. And you know, Catholics have uh, 
they, they have been, you know, sort of a, a just sort of a, a, a small portion of the religious landscape, which is, which is uh, uh, dominated by Protestants and evangelical Protestantism in particular. But in, uh, in New Orleans, different story. Uh, and so the, the Catholic presence there, of course, dates to French colonialism and uh, the Catholic institutions that were created in the, in the 18th century as the, as the, as the city was founded by, um, by French colonizers. And also, uh, you have the role of French slavery and 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 and, and persons of African descent uh, uh, being brought into the city and, and and into the region. And the the French approach, like the Spanish approach, uh, uh, to matters of religion, uh, was very different than the English approach. Uh, uh, you know, the, the approach that the English had in their colonies elsewhere in the American South. So the the French approach, the Spanish approach was that everybody should be baptized uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Christian, as a Catholic Christian. Um, everybody should be Catholic, um, you know, even if they were enslaved, um, even, if they were, even if they were Indian, indigenous. Um, whereas the English uh, were very, uh, very sort of hesitant about baptism of, uh, of, of, of Africans and of, of Indians. Um, and that, that varied somewhat depending on where, but... Uh, but but this this is this is a this is a key distinction between the English versus the Spanish and the and the, and the French, but this this leaves a, a legacy for a place like Louisiana. So, uh, you know, we see we see um, large numbers of Black Catholics coming out of that that 18th century uh, French colonial mandate, also Spanish colonial mandate, because the Spanish actually controlled Louisiana uh, for a portion of the of the late 18th century. Uh, so Louisiana, uh, Southern Louisiana to this day, uh, remains a very Catholic place. And certainly if we think about the American South, it, it is, it is the most Catholic part of the American South. Uh, so that, that's one of the reasons why I was uh, attracted to, uh, writing about the Catholic experience in New Orleans. Uh, but Another aspect of that, you know, as I, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, I had spent some time visiting uh, what what by the, what by 2005 was an African American parish, uh, Our Lady of Lourdes, in Uptown New Orleans, and Our Lady of Lourdes had a very in- interesting experience because it was founded in 1905, and this was just as Jim Crow and the segregation of Catholicism uh, was occurring. Uh, Catholicism in New Orleans remained Gallicized, or I should say Gallic, remained uh, very French, uh, really until World War One. And, uh, and but that's when Americanization occurred uh, in in a really big way. And uh, and and part of Americanization over the next decade or two uh, involved the the onset of Jim Crow, uh, again, quite late, uh, several decades after Jim Crow comes to the South. But but black Catholics in New Orleans, again, coming out of the French tradition, uh, had been able to resist Jim Crow for several decades. And there, there actually was an effort in the 1890s uh, to bring this in. And, and black Catholics in New Orleans, among them being uh, Homer Plessy, very well known for the Plessy versus Ferguson case, 
uh, uh, in which the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, found that that segregation was legal. But Homer Plessy was a Catholic uh, uh, in, in New Orleans, and he, he, uh, he worshipped at, at uh, St. Augustine, one of the, the oldest uh, uh, parishes in New Orleans and a, a black Catholic parish for much of its history. Uh, so in any case, uh, I decided to, to look at the history of Our Lady of Lourdes Parish in Uptowns, New Orleans. And this was a parish founded uh, as Jim Crow came in, so it took identity as a, as a white parish. And uh, black Catholics were discouraged from worshiping there. Some of them did. Some of them still worship there despite that discouragement, despite the fact that they were uh, asked to take communion last, you know, to go to the end of the line, as it were, and to, to sit in the back of the church and in special Jim Crow seats. Um, some of them still worship there because it was more convenient for them uh, because they live right next door the, uh, to the church. And at the same time, uh, uh, black Catholic parishes were established, including a, a parish called Holy Ghost, which was a, a, a bit further away and was not particularly convenient uh, uh, for, for some black Catholics to attend. So some of them continued to attend uh, uh, Our Lady of Lourdes, uh, despite the fact that they were uh, treated as second-class uh, Catholics in that in that parish. But then what happened over the course of the 20th century is that the neighborhood changed, the city changed, and the archdiocese desegregated the parishes. And so by the 1960s, we have integration by the 1970s, uh, we have white flight, and we have we have white Catholics leaving the neighborhood, and the uh, and, and Lord's Parish became a became a, a black majority parish. And by the time I visited in in the early 2000s, uh, they'd had uh, they'd had several uh, pastors uh, from from West Africa, and actually eventually from East Africa as well. So there was a uh, an African inflection uh, that was sort of mixing with, with, with African-American Catholicism in a very interesting way in this parish. Another thing that happens that, that, I, that I'm able to trace in terms of the New Orleans setting is that a, a particular African-American cultural style, uh, Catholic style develops, liturgical style develops uh, in the late 1960s uh, and, and through the 1970s um, at, at parishes like uh, Lourdes. And this involves the adoption of, of, of gospel music uh, in the liturgy, uh, replacing the organ with, with drums and, and a gospel choir. And, and so we, uh, you know, we have a, uh, the development of, a, of an African-American Catholic cultural style within the liturgies uh, in parishes like this in New Orleans and also in, in, in places like Chicago and particularly on the south side of Chicago and uh, some of the parishes with uh, black Catholic uh, majorities uh, in, in in Chicago and elsewhere. So uh, in this chapter on New Orleans, I'm able to trace the history of race uh, in New Orleans Catholicism. And I argue that that black and white Catholics were never completely divided by race, uh, despite the segregation uh, of 
Catholic parishes in New Orleans in the early to mid 20th century. Um, uh, but despite that, uh, we, we see the, the, the development of a, of a distinct black Catholic culture in New Orleans. And actually in the early 20th century, um, a, a very significant proportion of all black Catholics in the United States lived in Southern Louisiana and in the city of New Orleans. So this is a, a very important setting uh, for the development of black Catholic culture. And so I trace that uh, as, it, as it occurred uh, throughout the city of New Orleans, but particularly at this, at this uh, parish, uh, Our Lady of Lourdes. And then I, uh, I trace what happens, uh, you know, with the tragedy of Katrina uh, and the closure of actually uh, many parishes in, in the city uh, after Katrina uh, and sort of trace the, at the local level what, you know, sort of what that experience was like for the uh, parishioners at Our Lady of Lourdes. And, um, and, and eventually Lourdes would be merged with several other uh, parishes with black Catholic majorities. And so I, I, I sort of look at what that experience was like, which, is, you know, in, in a broader sense, this is a, an experience that, uh, that, that, that many American Catholics have had uh, in the 1990s, in the early 20th, 21st century, when many parishes have been merged, have closed and merged. So I, I sort of look at what, what that was like in, in, in terms of the, uh, the, the New Orleans uh, experience. Well, you also move move from the south, and you and you take a look at at the small town Midwest. Um, now, this is another uh, sort of neglected setting in American Catholic historiography. Why don't we ask? You know, why why do you think that is? Why why has it been neglected, and and why do you think it ought not to be? Well, yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question. Um, I think many of the studies have focused on the experience in New York City, which is where I'm speaking to you from, and in, in Boston in particular, and in Baltimore. Baltimore is a very important city in the history of American Catholicism uh, as well, and in the state of Maryland also very, very important. Uh, but by contrast, the the Midwest has, has not gotten a whole lot of attention, with, with the exception of a place like Chicago, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Detroit. Um, so some of the the, the Rust Belt uh, cities in in the Midwest have, have gotten some attention, but the but the rural Midwest uh, has has not really been a prominent uh, uh, locale in terms of American Catholic studies. So uh, in my book, uh, I, I have a chapter on Iowa, which is a, which is an interesting place for for Catholics uh, because Iowa, like much of the uh, lower Midwest, uh, had a Protestant majority, and so this is this is this is true for much of Iowa, with the important exception of Northeast Iowa. So the, the area around Dubuque is very very Catholic, very very uh, Irish and German Catholic, but. But the, the rest of the state, uh, it, it's, a, it's a Protestant majority, so Methodists and um, Lutherans in the northern part of the state and then other Protestant groups. Uh, so Iowa sort of stands in for the, for the lower Midwest. And with the, with the Catholic Midwest, both, both lower Midwest and, and upper Midwest, 
you have the, the great diversity of American Catholicism and, and, and the, the various uh, Catholic groups uh, coming from, from Europe. So in, in Iowa City, I look at, at what was the, the first Catholic parish uh, in Iowa City, um, St. Mary's Parish. And I look at the, uh, the sort of the contest between the, the different uh, uh, ethnic Catholic groups at that parish, the Germans, the Irish, and the Bohemians, as they were called in the 19th century. Now, now, we, now they're called, the, of course, the Czechs. And uh, so these three groups, they had to share this, 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 uh, this one parish in Iowa City for several decades. And it, it was a, a contentious arrangement uh, at times. And eventually the Irish departed and, and, and got their own parish. And the, the, um, the, the Czechs also departed and got their own parish. Uh, so I, I use this as a, as a way to, to think about uh, ethnic Catholicism uh, in, in the 19th century, and in particular the lower Midwestern experience, where you have these, these different Catholic groups uh, contending uh, in a, in a uh, Protestant majority landscape. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i think that's uh, that's really helpful and and then you go on to talk about the upper upper midwest you have this chapter um on on wisconsin you're looking at at catholic culture from 1858 to 2010 one of the things i found interesting in this chapter was the history of marian apparitions here and people people seeking mystical experiences of mary um, during, during sort of the cold war years. Um, can you talk to us some about this? You know, how, how does, how does this feature of, of Catholic experience in the upper Midwest kind of inform, you know, the other discussions on, on the formation of Catholic culture and identity? Sure. Uh, so of course, one of the things that, that is, uh, important in terms of contrasting, uh, uh, Catholic culture with Protestant culture is, of course, the, the, the Catholic emphasis on Mary and the, the, the phenomenon uh, in Catholic culture of Marian apparitions. So uh, seers claiming that, they, that they've experienced um, the presence of, of, uh, of Mary, the mother of God. So the upper Midwest, and, and in particular, Wisconsin, um, has, been, has been really rich with with this, uh, with this sort of phenomenon. And in this chapter, I look at, at two important examples of this. And, you know, I must say that we, we, we do see um, 
Marian claims of Marian apparitions in in in, in various regions of the U.S., but I think Wisconsin ha- and the Upper Midwest has been a particularly fertile uh, place for this sort of thing, and I think that might be because um, uh, you have such a diversity of Catholic cultures meeting there in terms of different kinds of Catholics uh, meeting in Wisconsin, and you also, in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, you had a, a church hierarchy that was dominated by Germans, not Irish. And so this, this may have led to a certain kind of inventiveness and uh, a certain kind of creativity uh, that, that may have been res- particularly receptive to, you know, to this, uh, this sort of uh, phenomena. So I look at uh, uh, two examples of this in the Wisconsin setting. So the, the first is from the 1850s. And this is a very interesting case because uh, this involves a, a young Belgian woman named Adele Brees. And uh, so uh, she, she sees Mary and a, what is technically called a cultus develops. So, uh, you know, those of us in religious studies know this term. My, my students don't typically know this term. Uh, so they think I'm talking about cults. But um, when I have them read something that describes a cultus, but when we talk about saints, and we talk about uh, 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 Marian apparitions. We, we talk about a cultus that develops. So it's basically it's a following that develops around this particular belief. And so a cultus develops uh, around this this, um, this 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 appearance of, of Mary in the 1850s in northeastern Wisconsin, which is just a little bit east of Green Bay, but it was a at the time a very uh, rural area, and. You know, initially, this 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 apparition uh, and the cultus that develops involves the Belgian Catholic community there, and they were sort of marginalized um, because uh, the again the hierarchy was German, and there had been actually a, a French Catholic and French uh, indigenous Métis mixed Indian European Catholic presence uh, in in the Green Bay area and, and, and a few other places in Wisconsin as well that went way back actually um, decades before this but but the, the the Belgians were somewhat marginalized and so that that's the sort of the the the, the immediate context in which uh, Our Lady of Good Help develops uh, uh, and in 2010 the the Bishop of Green Bay David Ricken he officially recognized this this Marian apparition as being valid, as being uh, as being recognized as valid by the the Catholic Church, and so far this is the only Marian apparition that has been recognized as valid in the United States. So, Our Lady of Good Help, in what is today called Champion, Wisconsin, ha- has joined uh, uh, Fatima in Portugal. Uh, from the early 20th century and, and lords in, in in southern France, again in the 1850s, as an official Marian uh, cult, uh, official Marian, officially recognized Marian apparition. Uh, so I also look at another Marian apparition in Wisconsin, which occurred in, in the late 1940s uh, and afterward, and uh, this was uh, in Nesita, Wisconsin, in central Wisconsin. And uh, in this case, the, 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 the seer was a, a woman named Marian 
Mary, excuse me, Mary Ann Vanderhoof. And so she claimed that, uh, that Mary appeared to her and, uh, she, uh, sort of cast this in the, in a, in an anti-communist cold war frame. And this was exactly at the time that the, the Soviets had just gotten the atomic bomb. And you know, there's a lot of concern about, uh, the, um, the nuclear arms race and the, the United States was falling behind versus the Soviets. And so that's the immediate context. And also Polish American Catholics in, 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 in Wisconsin uh, were particularly attracted to this particular apparition. And of course, uh, Poland had been absorbed by the Soviet Union uh, as part of the, the, the Soviet sphere of influence. And so the, the Polish experience of Soviet oppression is, 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 is part of the framework here. But in, in this case, the, the Diocese of La Crosse uh, condemned the apparition and um, argued that, that uh, Catholics uh, should, should, not, uh, should not worship uh, at, this, at this apparition site and, and should not participate in this particular uh, apparition. But nonetheless, the, the apparition and the, the cultus that developed around it uh, persisted, and it persists to this very day. And there's, a, there's actually a shrine there. Uh, and a, uh, there's actually also a, um, a school, private school that, that, uh, that, that's run, uh, uh, as, as sort of part of this, this, the same, this, this, the same, uh, effort at the, uh, at the shrine. So it, 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 it has persisted, but, but contrasting these, these two Wisconsin apparitions, we can sort of see, uh, sort of commonalities and also differences in, in terms of the, the experiences of the particular women who, who, um, experienced visions of, of Mary and uh, their, their treatment by the official church and, and um, which in both cases initially the the, uh, the treatment was was somewhat um, uh, hostile um, and, uh, and, and and this is actually something we see uh, with, with with many apparitions that, that um, initially there's great skepticism but in in a few cases, um, the skepticism drops, and um, the, the church, uh, the official church, embraces the the, the, the apparition, and it, and it becomes part of the, uh, uh, the the official Catholic culture. Which, which again, is what happened uh, at Champion in northeastern Wisconsin with with the Delbrises claim, but did not happen in Nesita with uh, Marianne Vanderhoof's claim in the mid twentieth century. Now, in terms of the Upper Midwest, um, uh, again. I think this is one of many places in the world, uh, you know, certainly including France and, and, and uh, examples of villages in Germany, where also we have Marian uh, shrines that develop and, and certain uh, varieties of Marian belief. And uh, uh, certainly Mexico as well, of course, with Our Lady of Guadalupe being obviously the, the, the most uh, significant uh, by far Marian apparition uh, in, the, in the Americas. Um, but Wisconsin is just yet another setting uh, that was part of what scholars have called the the Marian revival of the uh, of the 19th and, and early 20th centuries, and so the the apparitions, for example, at Lourdes in, in southern France and and, and, and Fatima and, and Portugal, these are very well known. But I argue in this this third chapter that that uh, you know Wisconsin was also a very uh, uh, important setting uh, for. Provisions of Mary. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's such a, a fascinating part of, of this chapter, which I, I really appreciated the discussion on, on the apparitions. Well, perhaps we can move to discuss another feature that, that comes up in the book in the, in the formation of American Catholicism, and, that, and that's uh, this idea of colonialism. Now, colonialism, it, it's, it has quite the significance in the story of Catholic culture in Southern California, doesn't it? Yes, so this is the this the subject of the of the, the fourth chapter. So in this case, it's it's Spanish colonialism. Of course, the first chapter, Louisiana looked at, at French colonialism, but with Spanish colonialism, you know, this is this is actually the earliest uh, sort of historical experience in terms of American Catholicism. So if we think about uh, Spanish colonizers in Florida, uh, in the uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about 16th century, 17th century, and uh, and and then and then we move west and we look at, at, at New Mexico, uh, Arizona, and then actually, and of course, Texas. Let's, let's not leave Texas out. Texas is part of this as well. But uh, eventually, very late in, in terms of the the Spanish colonial enterprise uh, in North America, we we get to California in the in the late 18th century. So I look at the first Catholic church in Los Angeles, uh, what, what came to be known as the Plaza Church. And this was actually uh, founded by the Spanish in the late 18th century. And, and then this, this, um, this church, this parish has, has a very interesting history because again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's formed as a result of Spanish colonialism and the, uh, the, the, the settlers who came up from northern Mexico, they actually were mixed race, indigenous, uh, African, Mexican, Spanish. Uh, they, 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 they came up, they formed the, the Pueblo of, of, of Los Angeles. This, this church is, 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 is built for them. Originally, it's a submission, which is subsidiary to the, the San Gabriel mission, which is a uh, about 10 miles away. Uh, and, and then, you know, eventually what happens is that uh, Mexico uh, becomes independent of Spain. And uh, so we have a, a period in which Los Angeles is, is, uh, is, is, is part of Mexico. It's, it's very, very much on the, uh, the northern uh, frontier of, of, of Mexico. And then um, in the 1840s, the Americans... Of course, annex California, uh, the, the northern portion of California, and, uh, and 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 Los Angeles. And so, I chart the implications for all of these political cultural changes for this particular parish uh, in 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 Los Angeles. And one thing that's really interesting here is that, despite the many changes between the late 18th century and today. Uh, and I pursue this story, you know, all the way up to today. Uh, but despite this, we see at, the, at, at, at this particular parish, the Plaza Church, and it's, it's just right off the, the uh, historic, uh, historic plaza in downtown Los Angeles. Actually, it's just right, it's right off of, uh, of, of Union Station. You know, it's like a block from Union Station. Um, we, we, have, we have a persistence and a, a, a creative remaking of 
of a, of, of a Mexican Catholic sensibility that goes back to the late 18th century. But, but this, this, uh, this, this Mexican Catholic sensibility has been continually reconstructed uh, despite these many, many political cultural changes since the late 18th century uh, in Los Angeles. Now, another aspect of, of the colonialism is colonialism within the American Catholic Church itself. And so as areas like Los Angeles, like New Mexico, like Texas, like Arizona, were absorbed uh, into American Catholicism um, uh, in the mid-19th century, um, we have uh, uh, a, a, a sort of colonialism within American Catholicism itself uh, because the, the church uh, hierarchy um, they were, uh, you know, they were typically of Irish descent, um, uh, in, in actually in, in the American West, in a place like Los Angeles, uh, you know, some of the, the bishops were of, of, of French or actually Spanish descent as well, but they, they were not of, of, of Mexican descent. And there was little effort made to encourage the, the, uh, the development of a, of a, of a, of a native Mexican clergy. So the priests in the 19th century into the early 20th century were brought in from Spain uh, and, uh, and maybe from Catalonia in Spain uh, or maybe brought in from France. And they, you know, they, they, they knew Spanish and they, the masses sometimes were in Spanish, but they, these priests were not Mexican. Uh, yet their parishioners were Mexican and of Mexican descent. And uh Efforts were made to standardize the liturgy uh, in the mid to late 19th century, and to de-emphasize to de-emphasize elements of, of specifically Mexican Catholicism that had developed at, at the Plaza Church, and even the uh, the architecture of this of this Plaza Church uh, was drastically altered in the uh, in the in the 1860s in ways that that. Uh, that, that de-emphasized uh, its Hispanic qualities in, in favor of, uh, uh, of, 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 you know, maybe, maybe, maybe European qualities. So uh, we have a, a way in which the, the, the Mexican Catholic experience is, is marginalized in the mid to late 19th century uh, at, at this particular parish and, and, and in, in, in other settings as well where you had large numbers of Mexican Catholics uh, in, in uh, American Catholic parishes. But then what happens in the 20th century is successive waves of Mexican immigration. And this parish, the Plaza Church, becomes a refuge, as it were, uh, for Mexican Catholics. Uh, some of them were fleeing the, uh, the church-state conflict that occurred in Mexico uh, in the early 20th century as part of the Mexican Revolution and, and, and the next several decades after that as well. Um, the the, the church-state conflict in Mexico that, that uh, was, was very significant. Uh, but also, uh, the, the Plaza Church becomes a place where Mexican Catholic immigrants can feel at home and they, they, can, they can find a way to, uh, to adjust to the, to the American setting uh, and to adjust to the... Uh, you know, to the the sort of the chaos of, of Los Angeles, of this large and this uh, this ever changing city of Los Angeles, 
and then uh, by the mid to late 20th century, the, the, the story shifts somewhat again. We have, we have uh, uh, again, subsequent waves of Mexican immigration, but also immigration from elsewhere in Central America, for example, from El Salvador, uh, fleeing the violence there and, and, uh, uh, and the, uh, the Plaza Church becomes a, a sanctuary uh, for uh, Salvadoran Catholics um, it becomes a, 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 a place where uh, activist pastors uh, are really seeking to, uh, uh, to promote uh, uh, social justice, uh, particularly for, for Latinos. And, uh, and the, the, uh, the parish has a very high profile uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a place that's very welcoming uh, uh, to Latino Angelinos. Uh, in, 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 in the sacraments, uh, including in, in baptism, uh, in, in weddings, etc. Et so it's a very interesting story, and it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to pursue this, this theme of colonialism in terms of, first of all, this, the, uh, the Spanish colonial experience, but, but also colonialism within American Catholicism uh, uh, in the mid to late 20th century, early 20th century. That's great. Well, well moving back east, um, you discuss Irish American Catholicism. How are how are these Irish American Catholics in, in New York City specifically? How are they able to synthesize the the Catholic faith with with uh, with American cultures or, or Catholic cultures with with the American cultures? Right. So yeah, very interesting question, and 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 you know, very important in the American Catholic experience. And, and certainly, you know, I'm trying to bring other immigrant uh, experiences, other Catholic cultures, for example, African-American Catholics, um, Latinx Catholics into, into the story. But the, but the Irish Catholic, Catholic experience, of course, remains very important. And so chapter five looks at New York City and how, you know, you have a, a vast wave of Irish immigration to New York City uh, in the 1840s, 1850s, in, in the wake of the Irish famine, of course, and you have this 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 really uh, uh, significant figure of of Bishop and then Archbishop John Hughes, who was from Northern Ireland, uh, and and he has a you know that that experience growing up in, in Northern Ireland is is very significant for his personality and, and the, the approach that he takes um, uh, as, as he leads the, the church in New York. Uh, and he, he's also confronting nativism, uh, anti-Catholicism, and, uh, and he, he sets up the, uh, uh, a separate uh, system of, of parochial schools as he, you know, he, he first of all, he, he's, he's trying to, uh, he's, he's, He's trying to deal with the fact that the uh, that the Protestant Bible is used in in the public schools, and uh, he thinks that that's bad for for Catholics uh, for Catholic uh, 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 children, um, and he can't get the state to support uh, you know sort of separate instruction for for Catholic students, and he eventually uh, sets up uh, this 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 entirely separate system of, of parochial schools, which of course persists today, and. Um, is a very important part of the American Catholic experience, and so 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 Hughes, you know, he's he's 
he's bringing this 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 Irish Catholic sensibility, but he's he's using it to deal with the, the specifically American context, and uh, he's also there when the the uh, the the, uh, the 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 riots occur in uh, in 1863, the conscription riots, draft riots, and you know this is all about the 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 Irish Catholic sense of of their uh, their their being marginalized, they're, they're having to serve in the Union Army, and, and they, they can't afford to buy a substitute and so on. And they're taking out their wrath against against blacks in the city, uh, and also against uh, not, not only blacks, but but, but others uh, who they view as, as, as having um, uh, identification with the Republican Party, which was, uh, of course, uh, uh, in power in Washington. And so... He was, uh, you know, he's he, he's he's caught in the middle of this. He, he eventually uh, makes a statement um, against the the rioting, um, but by then it's quite late in the in, in the riot, and and so I I, I I I trace all of this through the the experience of Holy Cross Parish on Forty Second Street, West Forty Second Street, which took identity as a as an Irish Catholic parish formed in eighteen fifty two. And, uh, and and then I, I pursue the story again, uh, uh, really much, pretty much to the present. Uh, and I look at what happens in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when Irish American Catholic identity uh, shifts in important ways. In the late 19th century, that that's still very much an identity that's attached to Irish nationalism. So I look at uh, the pastor Foley Cross in the late 19th century, early 20th century, a man named Charles McCready. Uh, he was from Ulster in Northern Ireland uh, as well. And I look at his relationship uh, with, with the Reverend Edward McGlynn, who was uh, the namesake uh, and the sort of the center figure of a, a very interesting controversy in, in uh, American Catholicism. Uh, McGlynn was a backer of Henry George, the, uh, the the candidate for New York mayor, and the Archbishop of New York um, was 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 uh, was was backing Tammany Hall and was against Henry George. And Henry George had anti-monopolist beliefs, so was arguing uh, for a land tax and and um, uh, you know for 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 sort of a radical solution. Uh, Sort of pseudo-socialist solution for dealing with the inequities of, of Gilded Age capitalism, and the Archbishop of New York eventually uh, excommunicated Edward McGlynn for uh, publicly backing Henry George, and the excommunication would eventually be lifted uh, a few years later uh, by the Vatican after other American uh, uh, liberal. Uh, American uh, bishops intervened on behalf of McGlynn. Uh, but the Archbishop of New York was a conservative. And so this, 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 this whole battle uh, over McGlynn sort of it crystallized the, the conservative versus the liberal camps in American Catholicism. And although McGlynn was reinstated and actually was able to, uh, uh, to, 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 to celebrate uh, uh, Christmas Mass at, at Holy Cross, uh, upon his return, but despite his reinstatement, 
the conservatives prevailed uh, in this in this this longer term battle. Uh, so, you know, this this is part of a larger controversy over what was called Americanism uh, in American Catholicism, which is sort of the, the debate over to what extent the American Catholic Church should adapt to American condi- conditions, as opposed to sort of preserving distinct Catholic cultures. And the conservatives backed uh, sort of the, the preservation of distinct Catholic cultures. So the, the, the Archbishop of New York was behind that, but, but also uh, other uh, conservative bishops uh, and, and also the German-American Catholics were, were, were sort of uh, taking that stance. And then you had more liberal uh, bishops, uh, such as John Ireland, uh, the Archbishop, Archbishop of St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, who were advocating that, uh, that the Catholics should really adapt themselves to, um, you know, to, to the, to the, to the American setting. So anyway, the, 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 the McGlynn controversy, uh, is, is a very interesting moment in, in sort of this, 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 uh, this battle over Americanism. Uh, and then I look at Francis Duffy and Francis Duffy, uh, Father Duffy, there's a statue of him in Times Square, uh, just, if you know Times Square, it's it's right next to the uh, the tickets uh, booth where you can buy Broadway tickets. Um, at least when the pandemic isn't occurring. Uh, but but Father Duffy was was one of the most made possibly the most famous uh, Catholic priest in the United States in the early 20th century. Um, and he came to fame because he was uh, a, a chaplain during World War One. And uh, on the, uh, in, in France, uh, on the battlefield, and many acts of valor, and um, so he, he becomes very well known, and then he becomes the the pastor at Holy Cross, uh, which is the parish that the, that, that the chapter uh, uh, is studying. And so, Father Duffy, very interestingly, in nineteen twenty eight. 1927-28, he assists Al Smith in in defending the, uh, the 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 right of Catholic office holders to to hold public office in the United States. So in the 1920s, of course, this is the era of the the Second Ku Klux Klan and, and rampant anti-Catholicism. And when Al Smith ran for president and became the the Democrats candidate uh, took the nomination in, in, uh, in 1928, uh, there was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment uh, that, that, uh, that surfaced. And I, I've actually uh, been to the, uh, the, L, the L. Smith uh, 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 archive, uh, which is actually held uh, in the New York State Archives in Albany, New York. And there's, a, there's a, several massive folders of anti-Catholic materials that, that L. Smith collected during his political career. And, um, you know, supporters of his sent, sent him all these anti-Catholic materials that were being circulated in, in the 1928 campaign and, and before that, after that, and so on. And Father Duffy played this really essential role of helping L. Smith write a, a magazine article that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly uh, after the Atlantic Monthly published an article that uh, that, that 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 said that, that that Catholics could not be president because Catholics were beholden to uh, uh, to, to to the Pontiff in Rome, uh, to the Pope in Rome, 
so Father Duffy helped to craft this rejoinder that that uh, was this, that was widely viewed as as being the the more convincing of this of this uh, this very famous exchange in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, so Father Duffy he represents how by the early 20th century, Irish American Catholics had moved from Irish nationalism to American patriotism and had, had found ways to define their American identity. And then I look at uh, the, the, uh, the pastor who succeeded Father Duffy. This is Joseph McCaffrey at, at, uh, at Holy Cross from the 1930s through the 1960s. So, of course, that was a, an era of, of tumultuous social change. And during those years, Times Square uh, became, um, you know, sort of uh, an, an entrepot of the uh, of the emerging uh, uh, sex industry and, 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 and pornography industry. And uh, with first of all, with burlesque houses, and then with peep shows, and, and you know, they, these these uh, these these sex establishments were, were just right right outside the door of the church, practically speaking. So. Uh, Monsignor McCaffrey, for decades, was was trying to battle this, the sort of the emerging sex industry. But he also was the chaplain for for decades of the New York City Police Department. So uh, during that time, during those decades, the the great majority of of, uh, of NYPD cops were Irish Catholics. They were of Irish uh, ancestry and. Uh, they, they had an Irish Catholic uh, identity, Irish American Catholic identity. So McCaffrey really represents you know, sort of this this emergent 20th century Irish American Catholic uh, uh, culture. And with McCaffrey, it takes a conservative direction. But uh, in some cases, it, it took a, it took a liberal direction. So there's this you know, really a, a variety of sort of Irish Catholic, uh, Irish American Catholic uh, identities that emerged during the 20th century. And of course, we saw with, with, with Father McGlynn that, that in his case, it took, it took uh, uh, sort of a liberal, what, what today we would, we would call a liberal direction, socialistic, uh, radical direction. But, you know, basically, this is a story about how Irish American Catholics are finding various ways to to craft a, a, an American Catholic identity for themselves, and so in this this uh, this chapter on Holy Cross in New York City, I'm I'm looking at how this played out from the mid 19th uh, through the, the late 20th centuries. Well, Michael, I I, I think it's just a, a really fine tuned uh, project that that you've that you've worked on. Um, the case studies here, they're quite detailed. They help string together the, the, some of the larger themes here. And, you know, uh, to this point in the, in the academic conversations, I mean, you, you suggest that, that Catholic history hasn't fully been integrated into those conversations about, about understanding the, the American past. So how do you hope this book will be received ultimately? And, and where, do you, where do you think it will fit in to dialogues in, in American history generally? Right. So, you know, Zach, you raise, I think, some important issues here. So uh, it, I think it's certainly, unfortunately, still the case that although Catholics uh, to this day compose about 20 uh, percent of the American population, although, of course, as you know, as those of us who work in religious studies, we know that this landscape is shifting 
quite significantly with the with the rise of the uh, of the so-called nuns, and I'm not talking N-U-N-S, but rather N-O-N-E-S. Um, you know, the, those who do not have a, a, a formal religious affiliation. Uh, so, you know, the number is now, what, 15, 20 percent, uh, maybe a little more than that. But but uh, just despite this this shifting landscape today, uh, Catholics remain the the largest uh, uh, religious denomination. Uh, um, uh, and that, that, of course, is because we we you know we count the the protestants as, as being composed of their of their of their particular denominations of course protestant numbers are are, are significantly higher than the catholic numbers overall but in terms of uh, particular denominations um the, the catholics are the uh the largest at, at, at about 20 percent uh so the the catholic story is is, is very important in, in 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 terms of the the american experience and Catholic history, I think, in particular, has has been uh, marginalized, has been uh, has not really been integrated uh, into narratives of American uh, social and cultural history. Uh, there's, of course, certainly a, a secularist bent uh, uh, to much American social uh, and cultural history. That that's part of the story. Um, and you know, it's also um, a legacy of the of the 19th century uh, anti-Catholicism, where uh, the United States was defined as a as a Protestant nation. So you know, where where do you fit Catholics into that story? Um, so you know, there are a variety of reasons for why this has been the case. But uh, I I would hope that this book, which uses my uh, my, my skills and, and my sort of my interest as a, as an American social historian, American cultural historian to, to think about the American Catholic experience. I, I would hope that it would, it, it would help to bring that, that Catholic story in all of its diversity, all of its particularity, all of its, um, it, it's, it's, it's different regional contexts that it would bring that into the larger American narrative and certainly the American uh, religious narrative. And then, uh, you know, more particularly in, in terms of American Catholic studies, I hope that this book will help American Catholic scholars to understand that that regions other than the Northeast um, have, have been quite interesting and quite important uh, in, in, in terms of the, the shaping of, of American Catholicism. Um, another aspect of the book, which I've touched upon just a little bit today is, is um, the transnational dimension of the American Catholic experience, which is something also that the book really emphasizes, which is that, um, you know, certainly with American Catholics, they, they, they have these, these Catholic homelands, whether they be in Ireland or, or France or, or Bavaria or, or Belgium or Mexico or, or Ecuador or, or Haiti or, you know, where, wherever this is. Um, and, these these homelands remained, and, and in some cases remain to this day, uh, very important in the experiences of, of these particular American Catholic groups. So, you know, the the, uh, the 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 transnational dimension of this experience it doesn't it doesn't end, uh, you know, in, in in a decade or two after immigration. Um, in 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 many cases, it, it it persists for decades. So that that's another thing that that I hope that the book contributes uh, that. Uh, you know, transnational dynamics are really, really key to the American Catholic experience, as they are for 
for certainly uh, other American uh, religious uh, groups, um, but certainly for the, the American Catholic experience, the, the transnational dimension is extremely important. Well, well, perhaps American Catholic studies, they, they begin to move away from, from the margins as, as a result of your book and maybe others that follow. And, and, I, and I think what, what you've shown is that American Catholic studies, they're, they're actually dynamic and, and they require a detailed look at, at the people, clergy, but also the laity and, and the places. So I think, I think your book helps do that. Well, Michael, it's, it's been great to talk about your work. But before we wrap up, maybe you can tell us some about what you plan to work on next. Yes. So, you know, at least the, the, the immediate next projects have nothing to do with, with Catholicism. So that it's, okay. it's uh, moving in a completely different direction. So I, I hope it's still of interest to your listeners. But um, uh, the, uh, the, one of the projects I'm working on is using Alaska as a way to think about the, the long-term histories of of the United States and Russia. And, uh, and, and part of this does involve religious history. So certainly the, uh, the Russian Orthodox church in, in Alaska and the, um, it, its legacy for, uh, you know, for, for, for the religious landscape in Alaska, including the, uh, the interaction with, with native Alaskans. Um, but I pursue that story, um, from the, uh, you know, from the 18th century, the arrival of the of the Russians through the Cold War, and and and, and sort of the uh, into the, uh, the post-Soviet and into the Putin era, uh, but you know, like like the the like the making of American Catholicism, um, this book is about transnational interactions, uh, and it's about region in the American experience, and so in in that sense, it, it shares uh, similar interests and concerns, and then my other book project um, that I've just begun to work on is a study of global symphonic cultures, uh, symphonic orchestras, and looking at the, uh, the sort of the history of symphonic music coming out of Central Europe, in particular Germany and, and Austria, um, but then moving around the world and, and certainly to the United States and the history of uh, symphony orchestras in the United States, German immigrants, very, very much a part of that, uh, that history. Uh, but also um, looking at uh, uh, Asia and particularly, uh, uh, for example, symphony orchestras in Japan and the, uh, also in China uh, and their interaction with the, uh, the tradition coming out of Germany, but also coming out of uh, uh, the United States and uh, as, it, as it emerged. And, and also looking at, um, at, uh, at Down Under, at, at Australia and, and New Zealand and uh, in that case, the symphony orchestras uh, coming out of the uh, the British orchestral tradition. So, again, uh, this 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 has everything to do with with region and with uh, uh, transnational interactions. Well, those sound sound all like great projects, Michael. But for now, thanks so much for writing this book. It's called "The Making of American Catholicism: Regional Culture and the Catholic Experience." It's out now with NYU Press. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Well, thank you, Zach, for the invitation. Really enjoyed speaking with you today. Great. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.